Romans chapter 11. We have made it through 10 chapters and we've come on the edge of Romans chapter 11. I'm already looking at that last sermon we're going to finish in Romans and sad about that. I feel like we should finish 16 and just start over, but I won't do that to you. Romans chapter 11. Romans 11 is unique in God's Word, and it's special in the cohesion and in the connective tissue of God's Word. Romans 11 is where the Old Testament and the New Testament meet. Romans 11 is where theology in the Old Testament and theology in the New Testament coalesce and come together. But Romans 11 is typically not a place that if you were to ask someone to preach on, they would start there. Romans 11 is a piece of a puzzle. And the puzzle that it belongs to, at least the general area of that puzzle, is Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul asks the question that all of us ask, which is, what about Israel? What about the people of promise in the Old Testament? The title for today is, God has not rejected his people, Israel. And it's taken right out of exactly Paul's point here in these first six verses. Let me read those, and then we'll go back and study them verse by verse and phrase by phrase. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says that in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, this is quoting that passage, they have killed your prophets, they, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Several years ago, my wife and I went to the theater to uh, watch a play in Los Angeles. It was basically the equivalent of New York's Broadway. There's a section of Hollywood where the plays are performed and they typically come from New York and find their way there. Well, this is a play that we wanted to see. We went and saw it, and we went to see it from the seats that I could afford. These are the seats where they give you little binoculars. That's how far back and up we were. And we enjoyed the play. Well, Kim found out uh, not long after that that there was a, a contest, basically, you could get involved with that possibly you could win front row tickets. And she won them. So we went back to this play on the front row. I'll never forget what that experience was like. It was very different than the first time we went. First, I was just a few feet away from the conductor and saw something I hadn't seen from way up in the cheap seats. 
There was an entire orchestra underneath the stage, all dressed in black with their own little lights over their own little music stands. And there were woodwinds and brass and percussion and strings. And there was a group of people, I think there was two or three people over, who the only thing they did was do sound effects. They were hitting things and banging things and waving things just for, for sound effects. From where we were seated, I could see off stage and see the actors as they were staging to, to get ready to come on the stage and how the, the, their costumes were being adjusted, their microphones were being, being checked, and uh, their, the, their director or their producer, one of those guys, I don't even know who he was, had a little clipboard with headphones on and was telling them what to do and where to move. I looked straight up into the rafters and, and could see a dozen people, a dozen people moving sets and dropping curtains and moving things back and forth, pulling on pulleys and working hard the whole show. Here's what we learned. There was a whole lot more going on than I originally thought. When you come to Romans chapter 11, Paul is saying, I think you kind of know about Israel, and I think you kind of know about salvation in the New Testament, but there's a whole lot more going on than you see. God is doing way more than you can imagine, way more than you can see, way more than you can conceptualize. Romans chapter 11 is a front row seat in the divine drama of salvation and the nation of Israel. Now, that's important. You, you might be tempted in Roman, reading Romans 11 to say, well, what does that have to do with me? Why, why does this matter? This is talking about God and the Jews. I'm a Gentile. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I, I'm fine with, with not knowing about that, not caring about that, except you have to understand God's interaction with the nation of Israel is infinitely and intricately tied to his character. A little review, Paul is writing to a group of Italian Christians who are stationed there. They're living in Rome, and they had certain understandings of the gospel but needed a full description of the gospel. So he writes the book of Romans, which is the clockworks of the Christian faith that tells you the simplicity of how to be saved, that's like looking at the time. If you flip it over and you look at all the gears, it tells you all the intricacies of how things work together in God's great mind to put salvation together for us. And part of this understanding is, is understanding that there's a distinguish, uh, distinguishing character between Jews and Christians, between Christianity and Judaism. He wants us to distinguish the two and coalesce the two. It's not only about the person of Christ, but the nature of salvation that brings that together. Yes, the person of Christ is central, but the nature of salvation that he, he repeats over and over from chapter 1 all the way through the end is that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by works or human effort. With the inclusion of the Gentile believers in the wonder of salvation, the question must be raised, what are we to do with the promises of God to the Jews? He made a lot of promises. What happens to that? For example, that passage you know very well. You may not can recognize the citation of it, but you know it. Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8. Just listen. God says this. Listen. 
God says, I will establish my promise. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you, Abraham, the Jews, throughout their generations for an eternal covenant, an eternal promise to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And then he goes further. I will give you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. You have a question that you have to answer and a decision you have to make. Did God mean what he said in Genesis 17? Or was he just kidding? Did God mean what he promised or did he change the promise? Because either he made a statement and made a promise that he'll keep or God is a, we have a word for that, what is it? A liar. How do we process that? Now that becomes excruciatingly painful to answer when you start seeing from the, uh, the book of Acts onward that, that for the large part, the Jews had rejected the Messiah, the promise that would make them inherit that land forever as Jesus, King Jesus would rule from Jerusalem and make those people his people and graft us in. They had rejected that. So where, where did the Jews fit? What do we do with them? What does the Bible do with them? What does the gospel do with the nation of Israel. I would suggest it's not so much about the nation of Israel as it is about the credibility of God. If God makes promises that he changes or doesn't keep to Abraham and Israel, what makes you and I think that we're so special that he won't change and he might not keep his promises to you and me in salvation? Look over back at chapter 9, verse 6. He's already raised this issue of the adoption of Israel and the covenants and the promises. Verse 6, he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. The gospel didn't nullify the Old Testament. He says, for not, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That's critical. He says, not everyone is truly a spiritual saved Jew who has Abraham's DNA flowing through them. And then that concludes chapter 10. Look at that verse that we know we looked at just last week. Chapter 10, verse 21. But as for Israel, God says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and to an obstinate people. So we find out a few things. Not all Israel is Israel. Not everyone who says they're Jewish is actually a part of the covenant promise of God. They weren't in the Old Testament. You had obstinate and, and um, stiff-necked people then, quoting Isaiah. But not now. All Jews believe the gospel. So there's, there's a remnant there as well. And then we find out at the end of verse, excuse me, at the end of chapter 10, verse 21, that God continues to outstretch his hand to, to these people who are disobedient and obstinate. And you might be con compelled or tempted to say, well, then God's probably done with Israel. Like a friend of mine says, Israel had their chance and they blew it. And so God moved on to the Gentiles. 
Is that true? Did that really happen? Paul knows that you might be tempted to conclude that. And so, in chapter 11, he begins to answer that question of what it means that Jews, some Jews are saved and not all Jews are saved. And what does, what does God have in mind and planned out for the nation of Israel to come back together? It didn't happen in, in the mid-1940s. That wasn't a gathering of believers in the Messiah. This is something far more spectacular that will happen in the future. Paul raises the question of whether or not God has rejected his people. In order to answer it, he gives us five reasons to believe that God has not rejected his people Israel. Five reasons to believe that God has not rejected his people. The first reason is so sweet and so precious. First reason is the testimony of Paul. Paul gives his testimony and says, this is one reason you can know this. Verse 1, I say then, he says, I say then because the conclusion would be that maybe God has abandoned this obstinate and stiff-necked and disobedient people in verse 21 of chapter 10. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? That's an interesting way of asking the question, isn't it? You could just say, has God rejected his people? Instead of doing that, he makes the conclusion that people would make the question itself. God has not rejected his people, Has he? And then he uses the strongest way you can say this in the Greek language. Me genoito. Me genoito. May it never under any circumstance be or exist or be concluded. May it never be. Paul uses that term 14 times in his letters. He uses it 10 times, may it never be, in the book of Romans alone. And he usually uses it after he's brought up something controversial in which we would conclude the wrong thing. And he says, no, no, may it never be. I know what you're thinking, but that's not the way of God. He's constantly drawing these these controversial theological conclusions that could target us in a wrong theological direction unless he stops us and says, no, no, may it never be. I know God has outstretched his arms. I know not all Israel is Israel. I know not every Jew who has given the gospel is converted. But God, has he, has he rejected his people? May it never be. He's answering the question that he began to raise in chapter 9. Has the word of God failed? Has, has the promises evaporated? Have the promises evaporated? Did he not really mean what he said when ever, he said everlasting covenant? If God is continually reaching his hand out to disobedient and obstinate people, did God reject the Jews, his own people? Paul says, no, let me give you a first proof. He says, first proof, evidentiary entrance number one is me. He says, for I too am an Israelite. He says, I too. I was one of the obstinate and disobedient people. I too am in that category. I also am an Israelite. And then he flashes his his resume. A descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. That should remind you of what he said in Philippians 3, 5. I'm circumcised, I was circumcised on the eighth day, a nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee. He says, if ever there was a Jew, it was me. 
Now, just for a moment, turn back over to Acts chapter 7. This is critical to see how Paul sets up this very important stake in the ground about his own testimony. Acts chapter 7, you'll know, is the stoning of Stephen. Stephen's preaching the gospel. And the Jews who heard him, verse 58, were not happy about it. When they had driven him, Stephen, out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was an enemy of the gospel. He was quite happy to watch Stephen have his skull crushed by stones. Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement, fully agreeing with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house. He's busting down doors to find these Christians and dragging off men and women... He would put them in prison. Yet, chapter 9, God saves Paul. Jesus shows up on his road to Damascus, says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul is radically converted. Look at verse 21 of chapter 9. All those hearing him, Paul, Saul at the time continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name, on this name, that's Jesus' name, who had come here for this purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Paul, rather Saul, sorry, kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. There it is. Here's the point. Back to Romans chapter 10. If God called Paul a Jew, it is obvious evidence that God has not abandoned the Jews. <laughs> the gospel didn't abandon the Jews. Paul says, are, are you kidding me? I'm the receiver of Christ. I, I believe in Jesus. I proclaim the gospel. If there was ever living proof that God has not abandoned the Jews, I, as a Jewish believer, am living, breathing evidence This next reason, he kind of blends theology and testimony. Number two, the foreknowledge of God. First reason to believe that God has not rejected his people is the testimony of Paul. Second is the foreknowledge of God. The foreknowledge of God. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There's the statement. There it is. Underline it. Highlight it. That is a 
theological pillar in your Bible that should not be ignored. God has not rejected his people, but here's the key, whom he foreknew. Now, to grasp the significance of the phrase foreknew, you got to go back to chapter 8, verse 29. He's already talked about foreknowledge, this election of God, this predestination of God. Speaking of believers in chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he, here's our word, foreknew, he also predestined them to become conformed to the image of his son. This foreknowledge has to do with the image of Jesus, God's son, so that he would become firstborn among many brethren. And those, these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Remember, this is the same letter. Take, take the chapter divisions away. He's already talked about foreknowledge. And when he says foreknowledge, he has in mind God's choosing of some for salvation before they were ever born, before the world ever existed. Now, you'd be tempted to say, well, this is, this is you know, election and predestination and hyper-Calvinism, except we just studied chapter 10, where he says in verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 11, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. If you're going to understand Romans in general, and Romans 9 through 11 in particular, 8 through 11 in particular, you have to be willing to say, I understand and believe that God has chosen, predestined, foreknown, elected some to salvation, not all, but some. And believe that fully with your heart because that's exactly what the scripture says. And at the same time, believe that when he says, whosoever will can come, that that's true. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you'll say, but that's a non sequitur. That, that, that doesn't make sense. Those are contradictory. Those are, that's paradoxical. Those two can't exist. And I would just say to you, welcome to the Bible. Is Jesus God or man? Did God choose you or did you make a decision to follow him? Do you work out your salvation or does God, or your sanctification or does God do it? Yes. There's a lot of apparent paradoxes that we allow the Lord to hold in tension and they will resolve one day at the throne. Here though, he goes back and accents the foreknowledge. God did foreknow some of the Jews who were really Israel, not all the nations. Psalm 94 verse 14 for the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Paul's own testimony proves this. Remember his, his words to Timothy about his testimony, about grace and mercy, which were the, the expressions of God's foreknowledge. Remember in chapter 9, I'll, quoting chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 33, I will be compassionate on whom I'll be compassionate. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Paul talks about this in this foreknowledge in chapter one of First um, Timothy, verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, putting me into service. Incredible. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. God says, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Paul says, I... I receive mercy, but that's not all. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant 
with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet, for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who believe in him for eternal life, which makes him conclude now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, I know that grace and mercy are wrapped up in God's foreknowledge and who he chooses beforehand to give that to. And I received it. I'm amazed by it. Why should we believe that God has not rejected his people? Because he foreknew some of the Jews to salvation in Christ. That's hell. And that's built on his foreknowledge of every Christian in Romans chapter 8. Not only is God's faithfulness to his people proven in God's, in Paul's personal testimony, also God's foreknowledge, but now he goes to one of the darkest chapters in the history of Israel to demonstrate this. The ministry of Elijah, number three. The ministry of Elijah. Here's another reason to believe that God has not rejected his people. Look at the middle of verse two. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Isaiah? Stop right there. This is in 1 Kings 18 to 19. He says, you know what's going on in 1 Kings 18 and 19, don't you? Don't you? I love the fact that he assumes that you ought to know what's going on in the book of Kings. Those pages ought not be stuck together in our Bibles. So let's turn there. As you're turning there, let me read what Paul says about this passage, and then we'll look at it in its context. Talks about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Here's the context. In 1 Kings 18 is a story that is so familiar to most of us. If you grew up like I did looking at flannel borders and flannel graphs, remember that with the little, the little uh, cutouts that would, that would go on the board in our Sunday school? This was always one of, the, one of the great stories. This is Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They're up on Mount Carmel. Remember, Elijah issues a challenge. Let's have an altar. Let's see who will, who will uh, uh, extinguish this offer, who will receive this offer, Yahweh or Baal? And he gives the prophets first shot. So they pray, nothing happens. And they fast and nothing happens. They feast and nothing happens. They, they talk and nothing happens. Nothing happens, nothing happens. They cut themselves and nothing happens. So Elijah says, tell you what. There's an altar with wood, animal sacrifice on top. I want you to just cover it in water. Build a trench around it. Drown it in water. Make sure it is soaked wet. Then he prays, and what happens? Fire comes from heaven, extinguishes the sacrifice. And that's typically where the flannel graph story ends. But it doesn't end there in 1 Kings 18. Look at verse 
40. This, I don't remember this part on the flannel graph. Then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. I don't remember that on the flannel graph. 300 plus prophets, and he kills them himself. That's important because this brave prophet who has just killed these, these, these wicked prophets of Baal, chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel, if there ever was a wicked couple in the history of mankind, it was King Ahab who was really ruled by Queen Jezebel. The, the reign of Ahab is really more the reign of Jezebel, if you want to read 1 Kings. Ahab told Jezebel... All that Elijah had done, it should have been the other way around, but you find out who's in charge here. That's another sermon. How he had killed all the prophets of the sword. And we don't hear from Ahab, we hear from Jezebel, this wicked woman. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, I just find it interesting that Ahab didn't. This is Jezebel. She sends a message. So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time, I'm going to do to you what you just did to my prophets. This big, brave Elijah. In verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, safe territory, and left his servant there. He ran from this woman. Verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. He was just brave yesterday. Now he's saying, take my life. And he said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, waking him up, and said to him, Arise, eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him again. He fell back asleep. Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. That was a must have been some meal. Then he came to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He pulls out his resume. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have, not fors have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's exactly what Paul quotes. So he said, go forth, stand on a mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a gentle blowing. 
When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you running? He said, as if God didn't hear him the first time, I've been very zealous for the Lord of God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And then the Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint king over Israel. And Elisha, remember that name? Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. We're going to make a contingency plan. Nobody's going to live yet. Yet. Verse 18. I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. They would take little idols of Baal and kiss them in homage. There are 7,000 you don't know about. God had 7,000 faithful Jews that Elijah did not know about it. Remember where I was sitting in that theater? I couldn't see all that was going on. Where Elijah was, spiritually, he couldn't see all that God was doing. And God said, tell you what, you don't know this. You're not the only one. There are 7,000 like you. Paul uses this illustration back to Romans chapter 11. He uses this illustration to say, things aren't always as you think. God is doing 10,000 things that you are not aware of. Even this morning with you and with me, are you aware that God is doing thousands upon thousands of things in this moment, in your life, around your life, that, that we don't recognize. We, we, we don't notice. Yet he's faithful. He says the same was true with, with the salvation of the Jews, which brings him to number four, this fourth reason. Now he theologizes it. This fourth and fifth go really fast. The conversion of the Jews. The conversion of the Jews is another reason to believe that God has not rejected his people. The Jews who become Christians. In the same way then, just as you thought there were not, not, not any, any believers with Elijah in, just as Elijah thought that, in the same way, you can be tempted to think, well, it's just me and God's forsaken his people. And There also has come to be at this present time a remnant, there's a key word, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. You think I'm the only one, I'm not the only one. I'm not like Elijah who will come to the Lord and say, I'm the only Christian who ever believed in Jesus. No, no, no. There's a lot. There's a remnant. Paul is explicit about the remnant, illustrated by Elijah, but now he theologizes about the story. Notice that he brings God's sovereign choice back into the argument. 
Because we're all depraved, Jews and Gentiles, had God's sovereign choice, foreknowledge, and grace and mercy been extended to those who would believe in the gospel, no Jew would have ever been saved, just like no Gentile would have ever been saved. Remember 9, 27? You can look back. Chapter 9, verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea. There's a lot. It is still the remnant that will be saved. Not all Israel is Israel. Now, right now he's talking about the conversion of individual Jews to salvation. That's pretty obvious. But what about the nation? What about a group of people inheriting that land that he made the promise about in Genesis 17? Well, he's going to come back. Just hold that thought because in verses 25 to 32, he'll answer that. He will restore Israel to Jews who have believed that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the Israel he will bless. The Israel that's occupying that land now is under a curse because they rejected the Messiah. Now, the fact that Gentiles are playing such a prominent role in God's redemptive plan, Paul's going to tell us in this chapter, it's not permanent. He's going to move Israel back into the central focus as we'll see in verses 11 to 24. And it means some very heavy responsibilities for us who are Gentiles. It does not mean that God has moved on from Israel, though. Verse 5 will become explained down in verses 25 and following in a national sense, which makes him conclude with a sixth reason, excuse me, a fifth reason in verse 6, that God has not rejected his people, the graciousness of grace. So sweet, the graciousness of grace. But if it is by grace, what is by grace? The choice of the remnant, God's foreknowledge and election and predestination. If it, salvation, predestined by God is by grace, this is interesting. It is no longer on the basis of works. That's, that should make you, you kind of ask the question was it ever on the basis of works? No, no. That was their mistake he's correcting. It's no longer on the basis of works. If you're going to receive Christ by grace, you're giving up any system that includes your works. It's no longer on the basis of works. You have given up anything you or I could contribute to the gospel. Otherwise, he says, grace is no longer grace. If it's grace and your works, grace and your effort, grace and your sorrow, grace and your attendance, grace and you fill in the blank, it's no longer grace. Grace is nullified by law and works if you're seeking law and works as a way of impressing God's favor and gaining God's love. He goes back to this contrast of grace and works. Isn't that been the, the, the primary message throughout the book of Romans? Grace and works. Grace and works. Why does he come back to grace? To contrast it with the single issue that caused the hardness, the obstinance, the disobedience in Israel's minds and hearts toward Jesus, namely, attempting to be saved by their own works instead of by God, in Christ, by grace, through faith, alone. Let me encourage you. We don't have time to do this now. Go back to chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, where he says, we, we conclude that 
Man cannot be justified by works, but only by grace. You can, if it's not in your Bible, that's a great cross-reference to put right there by this passage. So how do we walk away from this passage? What do we walk away with? Well, first of all, we have to understand that God is doing way more than you see. He's doing way more than you see in all dimensions of life, but he's doing way more than you see in relation to his salvation for his people whom he has not rejected, whom he will gather as a mother hen does her chicks one day in the future. But right now, only a few are coming. He's doing more than you see. He's not rejected. He hasn't stopped with Israel. And if he has, he lied. Paul told Titus, God does not lie. Also, I think we should be sensitive to evangelizing Jews. When you evangelize Jews, you know what you're doing? You're looking for the remnant. You're trying to, you almost want to say, hey, are you in the remnant? Do you, do you know Christ is your Lord and Savior? Do you know Jesus of Nazareth is the one that the Old Testament prophesied, that, the, that they were looking for, longing for? Do you believe? Will you believe? If you do, you're a part of God's remnant. Are we excited to find God's remnant among, among our Jewish friends? God has not finished with the Jews individually, and he certainly hasn't finished with the Jews nationally. That will come in the future. But that salvation will not be accomplished until they receive their Messiah. And I love verse 6. Do you believe, do you sing, do you worship the fact that grace is greater than all our sin? How about this? And works. It's greater than everything. <laughs> so, such good news that God will not receive me because of the good I do because I don't do enough and he will reject me for the bad and I've done way enough of that. It's based on grace. We sang it earlier. Grace, grace, grace. You ought to sing that as if it was your personal soul's national anthem because you love grace. Why does it matter that we pay attention to Paul's discussion of God and Israel? Because the very credibility of God Almighty depends on whether or not he will fill his promise and fulfill his plan and not reject his people who look like they've rejected him now. We're going to be in this chapter for the next few weeks and you might be tempted to say, ah, Israel, what? No, no, this is God. You better get this right. God does not make promises he will not keep. That's good news because if he broke one to them, he might break it to us. And he kept it to them, which means he will keep it to us.